You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collected work by Rudolf Steiner, number 107, entitled Disease, Karma, and Healing. Spiritual Scientific Inquiries into the Nature of the Human Being. This is Lecture 3, given in Berlin on the 23rd of October, 1908. In relation to what we call the history of the external physical world, we draw on external documents and report and reports to trace the previous historical eras of different nations and humanity as a whole. You know, of course, that by this means, by compiling and studying various documents of more recent date, we can look a long way back to millennia before the birth of Christ. Now you will have gathered from spiritual scientific lectures that esoteric documents can allow us to look back a great deal further into unlimited realms of the past. Thus we acknowledge an exoteric history relating to the external physical world. And we know that if we speak about the customs, knowledge and general experiences of nations in the centuries immediately preceding our own, about their discoveries and inventions, we inevitably speak in a quite different way than when we go back a millennium or two and try to describe the customs and habits, the knowledge and insights of more ancient peoples. History grows ever less familiar as we go back further in time. It might be a good idea to ask whether, in fact, the words history and historical development only refer to this external physical world, whether events and the physiognomy of the historical process only alter over the course of times so recorded, or whether in fact the word history can also have a meaning when applied to the other aspect of existence, which we describe through spiritual science, and which we pass through in the period between death and a new birth. Seen in a merely external way to start with, we must acknowledge that our existence in these other worlds, which are supersensible for modern people, lasts longer than does physical life. So can the word history have any meaning for this world too, for this other aspect of existence? Or ought we to allow the view that in the realms in which we live and through which we pass during the time between death and a new birth, everything remains the same, constant, but nothing changes if, for instance, we look back through the 18th and 17th centuries to the 8th, 7th, and sixth centuries after Christ Jesus appeared on earth, and still further back into pre-Christian centuries. Each time we enter upon earthly existence at birth, we encounter different conditions on earth. Let us try, for a moment, to think our way into the soul of a person, and we are talking, of course, about our own souls here, who incarnated in ancient Egypt or ancient Persia 
Let us vividly picture the kinds of circumstances into which someone was born, who in ancient Egypt stood before the gigantic pyramids and obelisks and encountered all the customs and conditions we find in ancient Egypt. Let us picture the conditions that existed in such a life between birth and death. Now, let us imagine that this person dies, undergoing a period between death and a new birth, and is then born at a period during the 7th or 8th centuries A.D. Let us compare these two epochs. How very different must the world seem to an incarnated soul in the times before Christ Jesus appeared here in external form on the physical plane. Let us continue and ask, what will be the experience of a soul born, say, during the first centuries of the post-Christian period, who now once again enters the physical plane? Such a person will encounter modern government and national institutions of which there was no sign in former times. He will experience our modern culture and its technologies, and in short, such a soul will meet a quite different picture from the one it encountered in previous incarnations. If we compare these incarnations, we can see how different they are from each other. We are therefore entitled, surely, to ask how the circumstances of someone passing between death and a new birth change and what happens between two incarnations. A person who formerly lived in ancient Egypt and then entered the world of spirit after death will have found particular realities and entities there. Then he enters once more into physical existence during the first Christian centuries, in turn dying and passing over again into the other world, and so on. Are we not entitled to ask whether on the other side of existence, in all the experiences we undergo there, history also unfolds? Whether a great many things do not also change there over time? You know, of course, that in describing human life between death and a new birth, we give a general picture of its nature. Starting from the moment of death, we describe how after the great memory tableau has unfolded before a person's soul, he enters upon a period where the drives, desires, and passions in the astral body, thus all that still binds him to the physical world, still exist within him, and where what we have become accustomed to calling Kamaloka occurs. After shedding these ties, he then enters Devakan, a world of pure spirit. And we describe what then further unfolds for us during this time between death and a new birth in this purely spiritual existence until we return once again to the physical world. You have seen how these descriptions have always referred initially to the present time, to our immediate current life, and this is for good reason. Naturally, we have to start somewhere, find a position to occupy, and relate our descriptions to this. Just as we must start with the present when describing present observations and experiences in accounts of the world of spirit, of the life between death and a new birth, the picture appearing to clairvoyant vision must be described roughly as this unfolds at present for the average person when he dies and in his passage through the spiritual world lives toward a new existence.
but in the full scope of esoteric observation. It becomes apparent that for this world too, which we pass through between death and a new birth, the word history has real significance. Here too, development occurs as in the physical world. And just as we give chronological historical accounts of differing events, starting in the fourth millennium before Christ, and trace these through into our post-Christian era, so too for the other side of existence we have to acknowledge a history. We become aware that there too, in life between death and a new birth, things were not exactly the same in the epochs of Egyptian, ancient Persian, or very ancient Indian culture as they are now in our own time. Having formed an initial contemporary picture about life in Kamaloka and Devakan, it is no doubt time to extend this account and progress to an historical consideration of these worlds, and to become clear about these things when we present aspects of esoteric history, let us be guided immediately by certain spiritual facts. To understand each other, however, we must reach back a long way, roughly into the Atlantean era. By now we can assume that when we speak of those times, they are to some degree familiar to each person here. Let us ask ourselves about the nature of human life beyond the threshold at that epoch when we can already speak of birth and death. The distinction between life on the other side, to employ a common phrase, and this side of life in the physical world differed markedly from the distinction we find nowadays. When an Atlantean died, what happened to his soul? It passed over into a state in which it felt entirely secure in a world of spirit, a world of higher spiritual individualities. We know, of course, that life here in the physical world for the Atlantean was different from our life today. The alternation we are familiar with between being awake and asleep and unconsciousness during the night was not, as we have often discussed, present in Atlantean times. As a person of those times slumbered over into the other realm and his awareness withdrew from knowledge of physical things around him, he entered into a spiritual world and perceived spiritual beings. In the same way that we find such things as plants, animals, and other people around us during waking life, so in those times a person falling asleep would become aware increasingly, in his sleeping consciousness too, of a world of lower and higher spiritual beings. People lived their way into that world. And when the Atlantean passed over at death into the world beyond, that world of spiritual beings and spiritual occurrences dawned for him all the more clearly and brightly. During Atlantean times, people felt their whole consciousness to be far more at home in those higher worlds, those worlds of spiritual occurrences and beings, than in the physical world. And if we go back to the early eras of Atlantis, we find that people then, this was true of all their souls, viewed this physical existence here as a visit to a different world, where they just passed a little time and felt this realm to be different from their real home, which did not partake of the earthly sphere. 
In Atlantean times there was, however, one peculiarity of life between death and a new birth, which it is hard for people today to form an idea about, because they have entirely lost it. The capacity to say I of oneself, to feel oneself a self-aware being, to sense oneself as an I, which is intrinsic to modern people, was something that the Atlantean lost entirely when he left the physical world. As he descended into the world of spirit, whether during sleep or to a still greater degree during life between death and a new birth, I consciousness, quote, I am a self-aware being, I am in me, close quote, was replaced by the awareness, quote, I am safe within the higher beings, close quote. Quote, I immerse myself in the life of these higher beings themselves, close quote. A person felt himself to be one with the higher beings, and in feeling this merged unity, he experienced endless bliss in that realm beyond the physical. His bliss grew ever greater the more he distanced himself from awareness of physical sensory life. The further we go back in time, the more blissful was this life. And we have often heard of the purpose of humanity's evolution within earthly existence, that human beings should become ever more enmeshed in physical existence on our earth. Whereas the Atlantean felt entirely at home in the other realm in sleep consciousness, experiencing this world as clear, bright, and welcoming, on the other hand, his consciousness here on earth was still half dreamlike. He did not yet fully take possession of the physical body. When a person awoke, in a sense he forgot the gods and spirits he had experienced in sleep. Nevertheless, he did not enter physical consciousness on awaking to the degree we do today. Objects did not yet have clear outlines. The Atlantean perceived the world as you may when you go out on a foggy evening and see the street lamps surrounded by a corona, an aureole of all sorts of colors. That is how indistinct all objects of the physical plane were to him. Consciousness of the physical plane was only just dawning, and strong awareness of the I am had not yet taken root in human beings. Only toward the latter days of the Atlantean epoch did human self-awareness, consciousness of personality, increasingly develop in the same degree as blissful consciousness during sleep was lost. The human being gradually conquered the physical world, increasingly learning to use his senses. And so the objects of the physical world also acquired ever clearer and more solid outlines. As the human being mastered the physical world, his conscious awareness in the world of spirit changed. We have studied the different eras of post-Atlantean times. We have looked back to ancient Indian civilization, seeing how people mastered external reality to the extent of experiencing it as Maya and yearning for the old realms of the land of spirit. We have seen how in the Persian cultural period, conquest of the physical plane had advanced so far already that people wished to connect with the good powers of Ormuzd, so as to reshape the forces of the physical world. We also saw how in Egyptian, Babylonian, Chaldean, and Assyrian times, 
people discovered in the art of land surveying, which led to agriculture, and also astronomy, the means to advance further in their mastery of the external world. And finally, we saw how the Greco-Roman period went still further, and how in Greece a beautiful marriage arose between the human being and the physical world in the creation of cities or Greek art. Then in the fourth epoch we saw how, for the first time in this form, the personal element emerged in ancient Roman law. Whereas previously the human being felt safely integrated into a whole, as the reflected glory of former spiritual beings, the Roman first felt himself to be a citizen of the earth. The idea of the citizen arose at this time. The physical world was conquered step by step, but at the same time human beings also came to love it. The human beings' inclinations and sympathies united with the physical world. And as sympathy for the physical world grew, human consciousness also merged with physical things. But as this happened, human consciousness grew obscured in the other realm during the time between death and a new birth. That blissful sense of being safely encompassed in the existence of higher spiritual beings was lost in the other realm as human beings came to love this side of life and successively conquer the physical world, as we see from history. Human mastery of the physical world grew by stages. We increasingly discovered natural forces and invented ever more tools. We came to love this life between birth and death, a process which ran parallel with a darkening of our old twilight clairvoyance in the world beyond. It never ceased entirely, but it grew more obscure. And as we mastered the physical world, the history of the other world fell into a decline. This decline is related to the rise of a civilization which we describe when we study people who in the first beginnings of culture ground their grains between two grindstones and then advanced stage by stage to make their first discoveries, to procure and learn to use tools, progressing ever further over time. Life in the physical plane became ever richer. Humans learned to construct gigantic buildings. But in this account of history, passing through the Egyptian, Babylonian, Chaldean, and Assyrian era, to the Greco-Roman period, and thence to our own time, we must mark a crucial moment in our account of the advance of cultural history. Balancing this description, we must describe a path of decline in the connection between higher gods and what the human being might perform for the gods, what he did on behalf of and within the spiritual world. And we see how in later times the human being increasingly loses his connection with worlds of spirit and with spiritual capacities. We need to write a history of the other realm too, of human decline there, just as we can write a history of progressive ascent, of ongoing conquest of the physical world for this earthly realm. Thus, spiritual world and physical world complement each other, or more accurately, mutually determine each other. As you know, this world of spirit interrelates with our physical world. Reference has often been made to the great mediators between the spiritual and the physical world 
of the initiates, whose souls, although incarnated in a physical body, nevertheless reach up into the world of spirit between birth and death. While human beings are usually quite shut off from the spiritual world during their lifetime, such individuals can experience the spiritual world during their lives and grow accustomed to it. All these messengers, both greater and lesser of the spiritual world, what importance did they have for human beings? Consider the greatest among them, say, the ancient holy rishis in India, Buddha, Hermes, Zarathustra, Moses, or all those who were great messengers of the gods in ancient times. How did all these messengers to us, from the gods, or from the spirit, affect the relationship between the physical and spiritual world? During and as a result of their initiation, they experienced conditions in the spiritual world. Besides seeing with their physical eyes and physical intellect what was occurring here in the physical world, their enhanced capacities of perception also enabled them to experience what was happening in the spiritual world. At the same time as living with others on the physical plane, the initiate can also follow what the dead do in the time between death and a new birth. He is as familiar with them as with people on the physical plane. From this you can see that all accounts of esoteric history in fact flow from initiates' experiences. An important turning point also for the history we are now considering occurred on earth through the appearance of Christ. And we can gain a picture of the advance of history in the other world if we ask what significance the deed of Christ has upon earth. What is the significance of the mystery of Golgotha for the history of the realm beyond this threshold, of the threshold? In lectures at various locations, I have highlighted the incisive significance of the event of Golgotha for historical developments on the physical plane. But now let us ask how the event of Golgotha appears if we consider it from the perspective of the other side. We can answer this question if we consider the point in evolution in this other realm when human beings had emerged to the greatest degree as citizens of the physical plane, when consciousness of personality had developed most strongly the Greco-Roman era. This is also when Christ Jesus appeared on earth. And so we have the most intensively developed sense of personality, on the one hand, the most intense pleasure in the sensory world, and on the other hand, the strongest, most powerful appeal to the other realm in the event of Golgotha, and the mightiest deed, that of the overcoming of death by life, as embodied in this event of Golgotha. These two things certainly coincide when we consider the physical world. In Greek times there really was great joy in an enhanced sympathy for external existence. Only such people could create those wonderful Greek temples in which the gods themselves lived, as has been described to you. Only such people living in the physical world in this way could create those sculptures which so wonderfully marry spirit with matter. 
This required pleasure in and sympathy for the physical plane, which only slowly evolved through history. We can get a sense of this development if we compare the blossoming of the Greeks in the physical world with a lofty worldview which people in the first post-Atlantean cultures received from their holy rishis. The latter had no interest in the physical world, feeling themselves at home instead in the spiritual world. They looked upward still in bliss to the world of spirit, which they sought to reach through the guidance of doctrines and practices given them by the holy rishis. History travels a long way from this disdain of sensory pleasure to the greatest pleasure in the sense-perceptible world of the Greco-Roman era, culminating in that marriage between the spirit and the world of senses which accorded both their due. But what was the counterpart in the spiritual world to this conquest of the physical plane in the Greco-Roman period? Those who can perceive the world of spirit know that what the Greek poets say of the best representatives of their culture is not merely legend, but is based on the truth. How did those who felt themselves entirely within the physical world, entirely sympathetic to it, feel in the world of spirit? When such a figure is given these words, quote, better a beggar in the upper world than a king in the realm of shades, close quote, this certainly corresponds to the truth. In this era, the dullest, least vivid state of consciousness arose during the time between death and a new birth. All this sympathy for the physical world went hand in hand with a failure to understand existence in the world beyond. It seemed to people as if they had lost everything, and the world of spirit appeared worthless. The more that human sympathy grew for the physical world, the more the Greek heroes felt lost in the world beyond, the world of spirit. Figures like Agamemnon and Achilles felt themselves to be drained or hollowed out there, like empty beings in this world of shades. There were, however, intervening times, but the connection with the spiritual world was never entirely lost. When such people could live with spiritual beings and spiritual realities, but the state of consciousness I have described was certainly present. Thus we have a decline in the history of the other world that runs parallel to the history of positive progress in this one. Those we referred to as messengers of the gods or the spirit always had the capacity to pass back and forth from one world to the other. Let us try for a moment to picture what these messengers of the Spirit were for people on the physical plane in pre-Christian centuries. Their experiences in the spiritual world enabled them to tell people in ancient times about the real nature of the world of Spirit. It is true that they also experienced there the extinguished awareness of physical human beings on earth, but at the same time they perceived the shining wealth of the whole spiritual world. And they were able to bring news to people on earth of the existence of a spiritual world and tell them of its nature and appearance. They were able to bear witness to this world of spirit. This was extremely important in times when human beings increasingly turned their interests outward to the physical plane. 
the more people conquered the earth, the greater their joy and sympathy in relation to the physical world, the more also these messengers of the gods had to emphasize the existence of the spiritual world. Quote, you know various things about the earth, they could always say, but there is also a spiritual world you need to be informed of, close quote. In brief, the messengers of the gods unveiled the whole tableau of the spiritual world to people then. Knowledge of this world was available in various religions, but whenever these messengers of the gods came back down to earth, as it were, after their initiation or after visiting the world of spirit, they were able to bring with them invigoration and elevation from the spiritual world, some of the treasures of the spiritual world, to enrich life on the physical plane that seemed ever lovelier to earthly human beings. Thus they brought the fruits of spiritual life into physical life. What the messengers of the gods brought with them always led people toward the spirit. The world of physical reality, this side of existence, was enriched by the messengers of the gods and the messages they conveyed. The messengers of the gods could not work fruitfully for the other world to the same degree. The way to think of it is like this. When the initiate, the messenger of the gods, passes over into the other world, the beings there are as much his comrades as are the beings in the physical world. He can speak to them and tell them what is happening in the physical world. But the closer we come to the Greco-Roman era, the less value there was in what the initiate could offer souls on the other side when he arrived there from the earth. For these souls felt all too keenly the loss of what they had held dear in the physical world. What the initiate could tell them no longer held anything of value for them. In pre-Christian centuries, therefore, the messages initiates were able to bring down to people in the physical world were fruitful to the highest degree while what they could convey to souls who had departed from the physical world was unfruitful. Buddha, Hermes, Zarathustra brought messages of great import to people in the, in the physical world, but by contrast could scarcely bring much to those in the other world. The messages they brought there were not joyful or enlivening. Now, let us compare what Christ brought about for the world beyond during the Greco-Roman era at the time of deepest decadence in the other realm, in our esoteric account of history, with what initiates achieved previously. We know the significance of the event of Golgotha for earthly history. We know that it signifies the conquest of earthly death by the life of the Spirit. The overcoming of all death throughout earth evolution. We cannot enter into all the details of the significance of the mystery of Golgotha today, but can summarize it in a few words. It signifies the ultimate irrevocable proof that life conquers death. And on Golgotha life conquered death. The Spirit planted the seed for the ultimate conquest of matter. What the Gospel relates of the descent into hell by Christ after the event of Golgotha his descent to the underworld of the dead, and his deed there is not a legend or metaphor. Esoteric research will show you that it is true. 
just as true as the fact that Christ walked amongst humankind during the last three years of Jesus. So it is true that the dead could rejoice at his arrival among them. Immediately after the event of Golgotha, he appeared to the dead, the departed souls. This is an esoteric truth. And now he could tell them that back in the physical world the Spirit had irrevocably won victory over matter. This was a plume of light in the world beyond for the departed souls, flaring in a spiritually vibrant way and reviving the dead Greco-Roman consciousness of the other realm to initiate a whole new phase for human beings in their life between death and rebirth. Since that time, human consciousness between death and new birth has grown ever brighter. When we give historical accounts, therefore, we can complement what we say about contemporary conditions with what can be said of Kamaloka and life in Devakan. And we need to highlight the fact that Christ's appearance on earth marks an entirely new phase for life in the other realm and that what Christ achieved for earthly evolution comes to expression also in a radical change in the world beyond. This visit of Christ to the other world is hugely significant and marks a revitalization of life there between death and a new birth. At that important moment of the Greco-Roman era, departed souls experienced themselves as shadows despite all their pleasure in the physical world and would therefore have preferred to be beggars in the upper world than kings in the realm of shades. Since that time, though, they began to feel ever more at home again in the world beyond. Since then, too, people have increasingly grown into the world of spirit, so that this moment marked the beginning of a period of ascent, of blossoming in the spiritual world. Though only in a brief outline, we have touched on the event of Golgotha from the point of view of the other world, at the same time showing that there is just as much a history of the spiritual world as there is of the physical world. And it is only by studying these real connections between the physical world and the spiritual world that one world becomes fruitful for the other in human life. We will repeatedly see how we gain insight into human life on earth by considering the true nature of the world of spirit. The end of lecture four.